0: It's good to be back with you again. Tonight will hopefully feel more like a Bible study and be a bit more informal. Nonetheless, I can't help myself. I'm a preacher at heart, so I may get a little bit preachy. Bear with me. We will be in Genesis 22. Genesis 22, I'll read down through verse 18. The binding of Isaac. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son, and he split wood for the burnt offering, and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abram raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abram said to his young men, "'Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you.'" Abram took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. Then they came to the place of which God had told them, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood, and bound his son Isaac, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad, and do nothing to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for an offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name Of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing, and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all of the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Thus reads the word of God. In 1634, renowned Dutch painter Rembrandt painted a great work of art that depicted Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac. The painting captures perfectly how the Lord intervenes to stop Abraham from slaying his son. Isaac's eyes did not meet his father's eyes. He was lying on the ground, his arms bound behind his back, and his eyes covered by his father's left hand. But his head was thrown back, revealing the neck. Isaac's curled right leg was completely relaxed while the other curled leg was ready to kick off. The most fascinating part of Rembrandt's drawing was the activity on Abraham's right hand. Abraham had raised his knife to strike the boy, but an angel's hand grabbed hold of his hand. As a result, the knife barely fell out of his hands on its way to the ground. The angel's right hand had such a tight grip on Abraham's hand that Abraham was forced to drop the knife out of his hands. The angel held his left hand up as if to signal for Abraham to stop what he was doing. The angel's eyes were most tricky. He was looking intensely at Abraham as he gripped him by the wrist and at the same time looking at the boy to see if he was all right. What a picture. We know this story well, don't we? It's the binding of Isaac. This story is one of the best told stories in all of literature. It's absorbing, it's riveting, it's challenging, and as a result, for centuries, people had been wringing this text dry. Why? Because as we read the story, we begin to experience for ourselves the torment of the test of God that rings Abraham's very heart. We can't help but see in the face of Isaac our own sons and daughters. Genesis 22 is a story of pain and and laughter, of never-ending love and near loss existing together as two sides of the same coin that is spinning so fast it is hard to tell one from the other. The whole gamut is here in Genesis 22. And you know what? I'm going to give you all of it. Just kidding. Not all of it. But I suggest if we are going to get to the heart of it to notice what I would like to call tonight, here's a, a phrase for you to think about, Life's collateral beauty. If you want to be changed by the text tonight, I suggest in our minds we need to be thinking about this phrase, collateral beauty. And we need to attend to three facets within this story. Let's attend to the first one. Let's call it the test of God. Now it came about after these things, verse 1, that God tested Abraham. Nisah in Hebrew. Now notice the deja vu with the first test God gave Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. He says virtually the same thing. God says, go. Abraham says, where? God says, I'll tell you later. God says, later, I'm going to give you a son. Abraham says, how? God says, I will tell you later. Now God says, give me your son. Abraham says, why? God says, I'll tell you. Later. In other words, Abraham is not only called to go, but he is called to go without knowing where he is going or how it will end or how things will turn out. Genesis 12, he is called to jettison his past. In Genesis 22, he is called to jeopardize his future. It is as if the first test is going to be brought to completion through the last test. This is testing time it is as if god is saying are you willing to put your future on the altar now let me ask you are you verse two most importantly as a part of the test and the only real difference that makes all the difference in the world he's not just called to go But to go to a place that he will tell him later, he is called to offer up his son, his only son whom he loves more than anything. Ahava in Hebrew. Just carries with it this this love sickness that Abraham had for his son. And friends, listen to this. God is not just rubbing it in. But just as Sarah tells Abraham in Genesis 21 to oust Ishmael, our sovereign Lord asks Abraham to offer Isaac. God says to Abraham, "Offer up the son of promise." This is an extraordinary thing for God to do, to tell Abraham to take the life of his only son. I mean, the most important thing for a father to do is to take care of the life of his son and add to it, Isaac is the heir. He's the promised son. And yet God is telling him to offer him up. To be honest with you, as someone who has a son, I can think of nothing more terrifying or horrifying than to be asked to do something like this. It's inconceivable. You say, this makes no sense at all. Isaac is the son of promise whom he waited a hundred years for. The son who was born to his elderly barren wife through a miracle. And as if that's not enough, his son Isaac is at that place in life where he is old enough to get married. Josephus speculates that Isaac was as old as 30 years old. And to have children and make Abraham a grandfather. The one thing Abraham longed to be and wasn't certain he would ever see. That's what Abraham means. The father of many nations. I bet he spent many a days daydreaming about his grandchildren. I can just hear him saying, if you you listen closely, you can hear my future grandchildren shouting, Grandpa, Grandpa. I mean, how many of you look forward to that day? How many of you are living in those days? God says, yep, offer him up. And that's just it. You see, you know you are being tested by God when he calls you to do something significant for him that causes you to sacrifice your life. And at the same time, it makes absolutely no sense at all. This is the essence of God's test. This is his command. His commands that seem to contradict his promises. It is the even though of our Christian lives. Even though I promised you a son, offer him up as a burnt offering. In other words, the test is this. The test is when to trust and obey God seems absolutely foolish, absolutely wrong, and absolutely impossible. And you see, the promises of God are tremendous. And their glory fades in light of the commands of God. Let me put it to you this way. You can know that you are being tested when to obey God looks like it will lead to a kind of death. This is how the tests of God work. The tests of God are also designed to reveal the, the little only's in our lives. You see, Isaac was Abraham's little only. Abraham has become the, the love slave of his son, to borrow a phrase from A.W. Tozer. And you know what's ironic about it? It's that he became the love slave of his son all for good reasons. There's nothing bad about Isaac. Abraham had waited and waited and waited for years. And when Isaac was born, he was special to Abraham because Isaac represented the faithfulness of God. He also represented youthfulness. For Abraham had Isaac when he was very old, and so the birth of a son sort of revived his spirit You see, for all good reasons did Abraham become the love slave of his son. And therein lies the practical implication for us. The test of God, take the things that make you a love slave, the wonderful things, the little onlys. Your if-onlys. What's the little only in your life? Is it if only I was married? If only my career would get to this point? If only I had a certain kind of beauty. In Abraham's case, if only I had a son. You would never say these things out loud, but at a deep level, you know it's true. You say, if only, then my life would be fine. It is these things that have become your Isaacs, and they are making you a love slave. And so God tests you to reveal your Isaacs, your little onlys, your only ifs. Don't you see? We need the test of God. And so it is because of these realities that God is asking you that every sense of security, of hope, and source of happiness be offered up to him. The air and the spare without reservation and remainder. I believe it was C.S. Lewis who said, don't let your happiness depend on something you will lose. For Abraham, it wasn't just his happiness, but his hope. He must choose my son, or my God. You see God is asking Abraham, who is the object of your soul's deepest faith? God is asking you, who or what is your soul's object of the deepest faith? Listen, every single person here, every single person in the in the world is religious meaning everyone worships something or a certain thing. Look, there are certain things in your life or a certain thing that if you don't have it, you cannot receive life joyfully. You have no security, you have no hope, that is the object of your deepest desire. But when you begin to realize that in the end life is going to strip you of it anyway. That there is life after it. That you cannot hold on to it. That the test of God teach us to say to ourselves, you know my heart says I have to have this. That I can't live without this. But all I really need is you, God. Beloved, it's going to be ripped away from you anyway. Why not offer it up? It's the secret to learning to love God alone for himself alone. It's learning to make God the non-negotiable aspect of your life. To choose my God over my good. But see, the good news is that when you choose God, you get both. Not necessarily in time, but always in eternity. Isn't that right? But if you choose your good, you get neither. It's saying with Abraham, here I am. Here's something to write down. Here's something to take home. It's as John Newton puts it, Lord, I know everything that you send my way is necessary and nothing can be necessary that you withhold It's being able to say that. It's being able to say, here I am, send me, send it. Beloved, it is then when you offer it up that you begin to see that you have his status, his strength, his special love, and gradually more and more you are transformed into someone whose faith is blossoming through the test of God instead of being withered by them. Now, the problem is that merely knowing what the tests of God are is not enough. We need to know how to pass the test of God. It's not just about a right perspective. There's a rugged path. Let's look at the trail to glory. We looked at the test of God. Let's look at the trail to glory. It's at this point that Moses slows everything down. It seems as if everything is in slow motion. And yet, doesn't that hit home with you? When we are tested, doesn't it feel like time stands still and the space between heaven and earth starts to thin? See, Moses wants the drama of this story to be felt. He wants the tension to be thick. He wants us to dive deep into our own feelings of our own faith so that we can understand precisely the weight of what is happening and to read this passage sympathetically. The story continues. Verse 3. Early the next morning. You say, I bet. I wouldn't be able to sleep either. But why is he up so early? I mean, shouldn't he be stalling? I know I would. Or maybe like Jonah fleeing in the totally opposite direction. But it says here, Abraham got up early in the morning. He doesn't sleep in. He doesn't wrestle with God. There is no deliberation. There is no delay. There is no dispute. No, early in the next morning, he's off. We don't know what he is feeling or what he is thinking. We just don't know. The text is absolutely silent as to his emotional state. And yet we live in a day, don't we? We are totally consumed by how we feel, especially when we are suffering. And yet, you know what Abraham shows us here? He shows us that faith is all about the next step. There's an application for you. Elizabeth Elliot says in her book, Suffering is Never for Nothing, that sometimes we just need to do the next thing. I don't know any simpler formula for peace, for relief from stress and anxiety than that very practical, very down-to-earth word of wisdom. You just do the next thing, she says. Friends, that has gotten me through more agonies than anything else. Abraham does the right thing, which is just to do the next thing. Verse 3 goes on. We were told that he rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And so he has been called to go and so he goes. He has been put to the test and he is determined to put one foot in front of the other to put God before all others all the way to the end. Abraham is determined to just do the next thing. Verse 4 says, on the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Now, before we get to what he saw, we must note that there is a three-day journey involved. It says on the third day. It could mean that he left there Friday and got there Sunday. I mean, it's about 50 miles or so from where he was to where he was going, though doubtless it wouldn't need to take that long. Or maybe you read this and thought, like many people do, that this is cluing us into the reality that Abraham had time to think about this. That Abraham had time to contemplate the implications of what he was about to do. I mean, it is easy to consider how agonizing this would have been. Maybe so. But I think there is something more significant going on here. Something that is more important for you and me to contemplate as we seek to follow the path on the trail to glory. I think I can prove it to you. The third day. Did you know that the covenant between God and his own firstborn son Israel is made on the third day? Exodus 19. That the king of Israel is raised from certain death to worship Yahweh on the third day? 2 Kings chapter 20. Or how about Jonah is swallowed up for three days and three nights in the stomach of the fish only to be spit up on the third day? On the third day, Israel will be raised up, that they may live with God, Hosea chapter 6. And of course, we must never forget that Jesus died for our sins, was buried, and was raised on the what? The third day. You know what this means? Not only did Abraham just do the next thing, Abraham had resurrection faith. If the first step is to do the next thing, then the next step is to have resurrection faith. If you want to pass the test of God, you need to do the next thing, and you need to have resurrection faith. Is looking into the future at something which the present is merely preparation for. He's not only thinking about what he's about to do, he's thinking about God is going to do through Jesus Christ. You don't believe me? Listen to this. Believe Jesus. Jesus says in John chapter 8 and verse 56 Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. This means certainly Abraham would have had in mind Jesus' sacrifice for sins. But here, he is pointing to Jesus' resurrection. Still not convinced? Look at what it says in verse 5. Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. Did you catch it? You mean to tell me that He thought Isaac was coming back. You better believe it. He absolutely thought that. He knew that in his heart of hearts. That's how confident he was in the promises of God. That even if God had to bring Isaac back from the dead, God would make good on his promise. And because of this, in the midst of it all, you know what he does? This is astounding. He worships. Are you jealous? Because I am. I mean, it is a holy envy, but envy nonetheless. Let me ask you, when you are being tested, is your instinct to worship? No, of course not. If you're like me, you groan, you grumble, you gripe. But Abraham worships. He glorifies God. You say, how in the world could Abraham worship? Turn with me to Hebrews Hebrews Chapter Eleven Hebrews Chapter Eleven, starting in verse seventeen. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It is he to whom it was said, "In Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. Abraham worships. Because he says to his heart, if the resurrection is true, and I know that it is, everything is going to be all right. How could he say that? Because he rejoiced to see his day. Because he had experienced God's actual presence in Christ, in his life. And on his heart, over and over again, even in stretches when he seemed absent. He felt God's resurrection power. Notice it says, which he also received him back as a type. A type of what? A picture of who? Who was it that put his own life on the altar and came back from the dead? Sunday school answer, Jesus. It's a picture of Christ. That's rejoicing to see his day. And listen to this. If Abraham rejoices to see Jesus' day, you know what? Jesus rejoices to see yours. Hebrews 12 says, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising shame. I love to tell people, right where joy is, write a line out to the margin and put your name there. Because when he did that, he was thinking of you. Jesus was what kept Abraham on the trail to glory all the way up to Mount Moriah. And you are what kept Jesus on the trail to glory all the way up to Mount Calvary. does this mean you know what this means this means that if you are to pass the test of God you must have resurrection faith and you must rejoice to see Jesus this day and then it will be like for you what it was like for Abraham no matter what you are facing do you have resurrection faith back to Genesis 22 so all along the journey every step in slow motion Abraham striding on to the place where he would have to offer up his son So he finally comes to the place where he can see the mountains of Moriah off in the distance. And as he sees them, he knows that this is the time. This is the place. And now it must be done. So he leaves the servants with the donkey and verse 6 says he takes the wood. And it must have been bundled together. And he takes the wood and places it on the back of his son Isaac. And they together start to go up the slope of Mount Moriah. Abraham, with the fire and the knife, goes up with him. Notice this. All of the dangerous stuff, Abraham keeps. You see the tenderness. I wonder what the topic of conversation was. Son, we're going to go up that mountain. It's a long way up. I need you to carry the wood, my son. Meanwhile, every step, every stick of wood, Abraham is thinking, I'm really going to do this. I can't believe I'm going to offer up my son. And so as the two of them walk on together, we arrive at one of the most touching scenes in all of the Bible. In verse 7, Isaac cries out to Abraham and says, My father, literally, Abba. And Abraham responds as if he knew what Isaac was about to say. He says, Here I am. Isaac says, "You, You have the fire and the knife... I have the wood, but something is missing. Where is the lamb? You see, this is a trusting son who says in a gentle and loving way, where's the lamb? Isaac says, dad, I know I am the sacrifice for you, but where is the sacrifice for me? I can see Abraham saying shakenly, verse 8, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Abraham says, God will see to it that there is a sacrifice for you and for me. God will provide the lamb, my son. You see, Abraham believes that somehow, some way, God will supply the bleeding lamb. Somehow, some way, God's promises will be kept. How does he do it? How can Abraham know for sure? Abraham believes because God will see to it. He is saying, my son, you can't see the lamb. I can't see the lamb. But God will see to the lamb. Now, what pushed Abraham up that mountain? What was driving him up that terrible mountain? What is giving him the ability to go up? You know what it was? Here's our last application to passing the test of God. Abraham was listening for the next word. He knows the Lord does not want to take away what he has promised. He was listening for the next word. And because he was listening for the next word from God, he would not kill Isaac prematurely or unnecessarily. He would not give him up until the very moment God asked him to. Now that's a word for us, isn't it? What are those Isaacs in your life that you kill prematurely? That you give up before God asks you to? God is warning us through Abraham's faith not to kill Isaac prematurely or unnecessarily. And that's just it. The last step to passing the test. If the first step is to do the next thing and the next thing is to have resurrection faith as you rejoice to see his day, then the final step is to listen for the next word. Mist of testing on the mountain of trouble, we must be able to hear the next word. Let's zero in on Isaac because here's is where it becomes extremely personal. Let me show you what I mean. As they go up the mountain, it is as if the camera zooms in on Isaac, and we get to see that Isaac has a faith that he shares with his father. Note this he doesn't fight with his father. Isaac is a fully submissive son. Isaac fully yields himself to his father. Isaac trusts him implicitly. Oh, to have this kind of loving relationship with our heavenly father. Indeed, you could say, in order to understand how to obey your heavenly father, we must look at how Isaac obeyed his earthly one. Isaac says, You want me to lay down on the altar? You want me to be your substitute? You want me to carry the wood? All right. And so Isaac lays down willingly a 30-year-old man and a hundred-something-year-old father. I would have booked it. He ain't going to catch me. And if you do, we're going to fight. He willingly lays down. Do you see that phrase? And the two of them walked on together. It shows up in verse 6. It shows up in verse 8. And it shows up in verse 19. You see, Isaac understood exactly what was going to happen. He realizes that he is the lamb for the burnt offering. In fact, the placement of my son at the end of Abraham's consolation insinuates that it is the son who is the one who is going to be provided. You could put it this way. Abraham says, God will provide the lamb that is my son. And it is here the story reaches its climax. Verse 9. So they came to the place of which God had told them. And Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac, the word Akedah, and laid him on top of the wood. No struggle on Isaac's part. In fact, he probably built the altar on which he was laid. And he takes it even further. He allows himself to be tied hand and foot. Isaac doesn't flee. Isaac doesn't fight. And then in verse 10, Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Abraham would withhold nothing. He would not even withhold his son. He says, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. Okay, let's stop right there. This is the part in the movie where we cover our eyes. I mean, the insanity of this whole thing. This is a terrible story. This is unthinkable. You say, I just can't take this anymore, even though I know how it ends. Can't we just skip ahead to the next word so we can pass the test? Get this if you are feeling like this is too much to bear, or the fact that God would ask someone he loves to give up something he loves, then here comes the kicker, because it is even worse than you thought. Because it means that you have yet to understand the true horror of the test. Because see, the problem is, you're not Abraham in the story. You're Isaac. Meaning there is a sacrifice for Abraham, but there is no sacrifice for you. And even Isaac can't pay the price of sin for his family. They both need the lamb. They both need a substitute. Because even if you are willing to lay down everything, your deepest loves, your little onlys, your only ifs, even including your own life, you will die in your sins like both Abraham and like Isaac unless, unless, Like Abraham and Isaac, you have, here's our next point, a thicket of grace to be offered in your place as both the subject and object of your faith. You need a thicket of grace. We need a thicket of grace. That's our last point. Charles Spurgeon in his sermon on Genesis 22 regarding this part of the passage says this, just in the last distressing hour... The Lord displays delivering power. The mount of danger is the place where we shall see surprising grace. Here it is. The thicket of God's grace. Verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He said, oh, thank God, a thicket of grace. And God says, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. Beloved, this is the next word. been longing for and it's right in the nick of time that the angel of the Lord shows up and who is that that's right it's Jesus it's the pre-incarnate Christ and he says Abraham Abraham you do not have to stretch out your hand because one day I will be glad to stretch out mine in your place isn't that the gospel I mean what did Abraham ultimately have to sacrifice in the end nothing Abraham didn't even have to provide a sheep out of his flock. He sacrificed absolutely nothing. Why? Because God in Christ sacrificed absolutely everything. There was nothing left to give except his sin. And yet he gets it all. You say, how? Why? Why didn't Abraham have to bring his own hand down on his son? Because he looked to the promise. He looked to the one who was to come. Because centuries later, his heavenly father led his son, his infinitely big, little only, up those same mountains where he placed the son on the wood again. Think about that. Abraham said on the mount of the Lord it will be seen. More literally, it says he will be seen. Who will be seen? Where will it be seen? Our God was seen in Christ as he became the sacrifice on Calvary and paid the penalty, the price for sin for you and for me. And because of this, in the midst of suffering, when it's testing time, we must remember that the real God comes for you in the flesh, in Christ, into your test and on your behalf. He does not stand far off. He stays his hand of wrath by stepping in and absorbing it. He will see you through and work with you the whole way through the test and on the trail all the way up to the thicket of his grave. He will carry you on his wings and gather you under them as he takes the fire of wrath for you, shooting you from the fire far worse than the fate Isaac almost suffered. And it is if and when we embrace this reality that our earlier questions of why me, the earlier groping and Grumbling and griping, all of that stuff quiets down, all of that stuff goes away, and we lift our eyes and we can begin to look around. It is then that we can actually begin to turn outward, and a new wonderful question forms. Not why me, but why you? Why you, God? Why would you enter this world of evils and succumb to the greatest test anyone could ever face for me? Why would you go through loss, weakness, hardship, sorrow, and death? Why would you do this for me of all people? Oh, but you did. You did this for the joy set before you. This is collateral beauty. Then, no matter how dark or how difficult the time is, there is something beautiful that is happening. You just have to look. You just have to see it. You just have to do the next thing. You just have to have resurrection faith. You just have to rejoice to see his day. You just have to listen for the next word. The clouds may be gray, but that just means there is a silver lining. Then the text says in verse 13 that Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. There it is, God's provision. Abraham said God will provide, and he did. He saw to it, there it was the ram. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up in the place of his son. And the Lord saw to it. Or did he? You see, a ram is not a lamb. It is as though Moses deliberately leaves Isaac's question unanswered so that you and I can answer it. The reader is left to look for the lamb somewhere else and in someone else. And it isn't until John the Baptist comes on the scene and finally answers Isaac's question for all time when he sees Jesus and proclaims, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There's a song by the Gettys that goes like this. Behold the Lamb that bears our sins away, slain for us and we remember the promise made that all who come in faith find forgiveness at the cross. Isaac knew this. He knew he could not be the sacrifice. He wasn't perfect, and in order to atone for sin, he would have to have been spotless, sinless, the true son. This is the message of the gospel. On the mount of the Lord, he will be provided, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The one provided is not Isaac. The one provided is not the ram. The one provided is the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. The one provided is Jesus Christ who went to the cross as our substitute in love, not for his sin, but for ours. The good news is that God in grace provided for you in Christ what you could never, ever, ever provide for yourself. He is Jehovah Jireh. I can just imagine As the knife plunges deep into the ram, who will one day become the lamb, Abraham and Isaac, as they watched the flames and felt the heat, saying to each other, That could have been you, son. That could have been me, dad. God provided a substitute sacrifice, and on the mount of the Lord it was provided. One of the ancient Jewish commentaries on Genesis 22 contained these striking words. As it pictures Isaac with the wood for the sacrifice on his back, listen to this. Isaac, like a condemned man, carries his own cross. And yet you see that although the wood is on the son's shoulders, the fire and the knife for the sacrifice are in the hands of the father. And so what happened on the cross is that God did what Abraham did not need to do and what Isaac did not need to go through because God did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. You see, for Abraham, Jesus was the object of his faith. But it is here we see for Isaac, Jesus was the subject of his faith. Jesus came not just so that Abraham's faith might be tested, but also that Isaac's redemption might be sealed. Jesus is the one who was provided for us. He paid it all. All to him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he in his grace washes us right as snow. He paid it all. Paul says in Romans 8, 32, that he who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not freely give us all things? Notice the grace. In Genesis 22, it is the grace that spares Isaac. In the gospel, it is the grace that saves us. And in Romans 8.32, it is the grace that sustains. And notice, it's free. And just because it's free doesn't mean it's cheap. In fact, it costs Jesus everything. But not only that, nothing can separate you Romans 8 is that great chapter on the love of God in Christ. Nothing can separate you from this grace. This is grace beyond degree. This is grace without limits. This is extravagant grace. And you know what? There was no substitute for Jesus so that there would be a substitute for you. Jesus Christ is the son of promise, the greater Isaac, who went willingly to the cross to pay the ultimate price. God gave his only son, Jesus Christ, and he paid the price. When Jesus Christ cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There was no answer. The Lord didn't provide for him so that he could provide for you. Jesus Christ was forsaken so that you could be forgiven. There was no healing the breach, no removing the curse, no staying the knife, just a lamb crowned with thorns, flogged by the thicket of God's wrath and given over for our sins. And in that moment, the Lord caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Friends, that is the free offer of the gospel. This is his extravagant grace being poured out in your hearts today. And it has been seen. He has seen to it. Now it's your turn to see to it that you believe in what he has provided for you in Christ. There's a really clear picture in comparing both Jesus and Isaac. Listen to this. Isaac was a long-promised son to Abraham. Jesus was the long-promised Messiah and Son of God. Both were the only son of their father. God said that Isaac was your son, your only son, whom you love to Abraham. God said, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Both had a miraculous birth. Isaac was born to parents who were very old. Jesus was born of a virgin Mary and conceived by the Holy Spirit. Both had a conception and a birth that was pre-announced. Both were named before their birth. Both were mocked and persecuted by their own kindred. Both were undeserving of their sacrificial death. Both were sacrificed near the same place. Both were loved by their fathers. Both had a three-day experience. Isaac had a three-day hike to Mount Moriah. Jesus had three days from the cross to the grave to the resurrection. Both were accompanied by two men, Isaac by two servants, Jesus by two thieves. Both carried their own wood. Isaac carried the wood for his own sacrifice. Jesus carried the cross beam of his cross. Both submitted to the Father. Isaac willingly laid down his life submitting to his Father. Jesus submitted to his Father's will and laid down his life for our sin. Both asked a question of their Father. Isaac asked Abraham, here's the the fire and the wood, Father, but where's the lamb? Jesus cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Both were brought back from the dead. Isaac was brought back figuratively by the faith of Abraham. Jesus rose from the dead three days after he was crucified. Jesus Christ is the true and greater Isaac. Let's just look at one application as we close. I need a little more motivation. All that was good, but I need something more. Let me give you just one more motivation as you think about the test of God, the trail to glory, and the thicket of his grace. Let's look at friendship. What's another reason why Abraham passed the test? It was because of his friendship with God. You say, what are you talking about, Willis? Look at James chapter 2. Turn with me to James chapter 2. This is so good. James chapter 2. To pass the test of God, there has to be a living faith stemming from a loving friendship. Let me say that again. Apart from the three applications that I gave you earlier, just do the next thing. Have resurrection faith. Listen for the next word. In order to pass the test, there has to be a living faith stemming from a loving friendship. James 2 and verse 21 says this. Was not Abraham our father, justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar you see verse 22 that faith was working with his works and as a result of the works faith was perfected and the scripture was fulfilled which says and Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness and he was called the what the friend of God this is the bottom line of our faith. James says you want to see the difference between a Christian who folds under the pressure of the test and a Christian who flourishes? A dead faith breaks under the weight of suffering and shudders over even the thought of it. A living faith blossoms in the garden of suffering. Why? Because living faith enjoys friendship with God. True faith trusts God. It sees the loveliness of God, especially in his suffering. It doesn't have to know where it is going because it knows with whom it is going. And when you find your heart giving out, saying, he did this for me, then that's the essence of living faith flowing from a loving friendship that will be your saving grace amidst the test of God. It's when you see the friendliness of Jesus that you want to pass the test just to please him, your friend, just because you want to know that he's smiling Just because you want to know that you have rejoiced the heart of the one who has done this for you. You're God's friend. You see, it's friendship that fortifies your faith amid the test of God. It's seeing a a greater one than Abraham and even Isaac. Where God the Father walked up that mountain with his son and sacrificed his son and went through with it. Now look at Jesus Christ. The Son of God, crying, yelling, being betrayed, all sorts of things that we go through, feeling cut off from God and say, you too? Remember, Jesus Christ looking down from the cross with all the people denying him, betraying him, forsaking him, mocking him, rejecting him, and in the greatest act in the history of the world, the greatest act of friendship in the history of the world, he stayed. He just stayed. In other words, a Christian looks at God sacrificing his son and he says, Now I know that I am a friend of God. It reminds me of that old Frankenstein movie, The Bride of Frankenstein. There's that pretty famous scene where Frankenstein, who can who can barely speak, he's he's growling, you know. And he's running away through the woods, and in the middle of the forest, he finds an an old blind man. And as the monster is coming in, the blind man is on his knees praying to God, Oh, God, please give me a friend to be of some comfort to me in my terrible loneliness. And now in comes the monster, and the, the blind man can't see him, and so he's not afraid of him. And so he can sense that the blind man can't speak, and so he says, Oh, you, you have an affliction? You, you can't speak? I have an affliction. I can't see. We can be friends the blind man begins to be so friendly, something Frankenstein has never experienced. The blind man feeds him and takes care of him and he sings to him. And you begin to see, under the power of the friendship, the monster has never experienced. He starts to change. He starts to, to humanize. He starts to say things like food, good. But then, of course, some of the soldiers who are out there to hunt the monster, find the monster, they attack the cottage, and the cottage is burned down to the ground. And all you see is the monster groping off into the woods, out of the fire, through the smoke, saying, friend, 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 you see, we are the Frankenstein monster. And until we look to the true friend, Jesus Christ, we are merely stitched together by what other people say about us or our last failed test or our frailty in our humanness. What I need, what you need, what we all need is a friend. The ultimate friend whose love can change you and make you human like him. We're all like that Frankenstein, looking for a friend. If we can just find the ultimate friend, then we can finally be the human being that God has destined us to be and pass the test of God. The tests of God are not designed to break your faith, but to build your faith, even when it feels like the God who loves you is trying to kill you. And it's when we see the friendship of Jesus Christ that we can face anything, even the test of God. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the story of the sacrifice of Isaac. For in it is locked all the grace that we need to pass the test, all the grace that we need to be able to face anything. We thank you, Christ, that you were truly the only one who faced for us the only true insurmountable test come down on you on the cross. You suffered not that we might not suffer, though, but that in our suffering we may become like you. Help us, like Paul, to rejoice in our sufferings. And know that you sent forth the Spirit of your Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And like Isaac, we can expect that you will provide for us in Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.